Welcome to this week's episode of the Worldwide Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving. And um, I thought I'd just start this week with some reflections on what's going on on the landscape, um, wild edible-wise. So the birch sap has stopped flowing where we are now. Um, and there's a lot of signs of the spring continuing to unfold. Uh, dandelion flowers are just about everywhere. Um, as are you know, the lady smockers in flower. That's a, a, a nice sort of horseradishy mustardy plant with a pinky purple flower, um, which tastes strongly of horseradish. So it, it's always quite funny when people taste that for the first time. You don't really associate pretty flowers with um, intense spiciness. Um, the wood sorrels out in the forest, that's um, sometimes um, known as the shamrock for... for uh, its association with uh, the Irish shamrock. It looks just like clover and it's very sour and appley in flavour and also has a, a, a lovely pink flower. Um, but there's an interesting thought about that. The thing that happens when plants are in flower is that they automatically draw attention. Now, of course, they're designed to... What, they, what that does for them is it attracts insects, but coincidentally, it also attracts our attention. And it's a great thing for foragers because... Um, there's many a dandelion patch or wood sorrel patch which just becomes that much more visible when those brightly coloured flowers are there and, and the same goes for the lady smock I mentioned and for pretty much um, all of the soft herbs um, by the way a soft herb is anything that's not a tree or a shrub basically um, so all of these plants basically enable us to see where they are when we're not that close to them um, and a lot of herbs the leaves are, are a little bit hard to spot unless you are really close to them. The only other thing I can think of that, that um, does something similar is, is the aroma. I've, I've once discovered a wild thyme patch based on the fact I could smell that thyme aroma and uh, wild garlic often gives away its location in a similar way. But these are really interesting things that enable you to read a landscape and just see these signs that are basically telling you that food is available or indeed you know, medicine or any other useful property of a plant, when something is visible from a distance and it kind of draws you in, enables you to see what's there. Um, another thing that's happening just now is a lot of the plants are moving into, um, well, I should say some. This is something that continues to unfold through the summer. But um, some plants are moving into the flowering stage, um, which for them requires... A, uh, an elevated stem. So wood sorrel is right down on the ground. It has a little pink flower pretty much at the same level of the leaves. But a lot of plants, they need to lift their flowers up to make them more prominent and available for insects and also because it suits their method of scattering seeds. So one example of that is wild chervil. And I want to say a little bit about that because um, wild chervil is also known as cow parsley. And um, in the UK, it's a plant which uh, is known to be more abundant in terms of in terms of biomass than any other soft herb. So, basically, if you piled up all the wild chervil in one place, there's more of that than there is any other wild plant that's growing in the UK. Wild chervil is something that looks very similar to a deadly poisonous plant called hemlock. Um, so you can kind of see why it's not enthusiastically engaged with by the mass of the population there's a reason to be really cautious um, but the more I get familiar with that plant you know every year we use the uh, the soft herb 
part of it, which is similar to the French herb chervil and also similar to parsley. Um, you can pick down the green leaves and chop them as a herb. But also the stalks get bigger and bigger as, as the, the uh, spring progresses. Um, and they end up being almost the size of a, um, a small celery stalk. And they can be chopped down and used in salads or for cooking. But my favourite bit is what's coming out now, which I've already mentioned. The, the flowering stem's just beginning to come up. And whilst it's still coming up, i.e. it hasn't reached its final um, height, at which point it starts putting very tough fibres there to give it rigidity and structure. Um, up until that point, it's very tender and sweet. Now, the closest thing in terms of cultivated veg that um, you might be familiar with um, is asparagus. That's a flowering stem, and it's a flowering stem that's harvested at this tender stage. Again, tender and sweet and, and succulent. The reason for that is while the plant's still growing, it needs to maintain that flexibility. It doesn't want to have rigid fibers that, that, that mean it can't sort of stretch, as it were. And also the sugar is fueling the growth. It does make me wonder why um, asparagus is the only example or prominent example of a stem that's used in uh, you know, mainstream as a mainstream veg. Because many, many plants produce this um, flowering stem that's there to lift lift the flowers um, and and the other reasons I said that to enable the seed dispersal so you have all sorts of things like dock and uh, other carrot family plants like fennel even things like wild lettuce and bristly ox tongue and south thistle there's, there's a whole range of plants which produce a flowering stem at this time of year which is really of interest. They're, they're, they're succulent, they're delicious, and uh, super abundant and sweet. And when it comes to wild chervil, it's something that you can eat pretty much wherever you go at this time of year, you're gonna find some. And it's something you can snack on and just peel it down and have this really sweet tasting um, tender stem. Um, so I would encourage anyone out there that's, uh, that's got the patience to properly learn to identify plants, I would emphasize that. Because you don't want to be trying to eat wild chervil when, when, when you're cutting corners with plant ID, you may end up dead as a result of eating hemlock. But it really is worth the trouble. And once you know these plants, you, you would never um, really think twice. Uh, it's just in the stages where you're getting to know them that you could confuse one with the other. So there's a little thing to just flag up. If you're starting to do a bit of foraging, just take advantage of those flowers, letting you know where the plants are tune into some of these flowering stems that are coming up and, and just feast on the bounty of the land. Um, and it's all really, uh, in the end, it's, it's us beginning to inhabit these uh, places where we um, exist, you know, uh, and I use that to juxtapose the idea of really inhabiting somewhere versus existing because a thought that keeps coming through my mind is how you know, we are, in effect, exiles in the place where we are because we don't have these relationships to, to landscape and surroundings. And of course, in thinking about becoming inhabitants again, we're harking back to times when people wouldn't think twice. There wasn't another thing that you could do. You know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors and, and people still alive today that are living in that way of uh, hunting and gathering and, and using the wild species that are around them. And people 
that fill a space in between to varying degrees. A lot of subsistence farmers still use a lot of wild plants and it's a normal thing for many people still alive on the planet today uh, to have a, 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 a relationship which goes back through generations with a particular place through the plants and other species that grow there. But then again, the fact that many of us don't live like that, there's this theme which I want to begin to move into now because it touches on the subject of... Um, uh, or some of the subjects of this week's conversation with this week's guest, Anna Lewington. You know, there has been a, 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 a process of being exiled, a process of being um, disenfranchised and, 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 and sort of really uprooted from land and disconnected from this uh, ancestral way of life inherited through generations, which would have made people feel they belonged not just to the landscape, but belonged to the traditions of their ancestors and belonged to the community that they lived in that had this wonderful way of life that, that basically lived as a response to land um, collectively. So the idea that people have been basically robbed of their heritage, um, it's really interesting. Anna, Anna Lewington, who I'll introduce in a minute, she does a great job of, of setting her life's work in, in the context of, of its beginnings. Uh, um, she'll tell the story, but it, 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 uh, I'm going to preempt it by mentioning that it's all based on the fact that, that someone cut down some woodlands that meant a lot to her and her family. And that led her to empathize with people whose whole life was um, connected to forests that have been cut down um, all across the world. And, and that's happening as we speak, folks. Um, it's, it's, it's good to keep reminding ourselves that, that, that when we talk about these kind of tragedies uh, of, of loss of um, heritage and culture and, and loss of relationship to land, that's something that's being forcibly um, imposed upon people as we speak. It's not just something that happened uh, in Australia a couple of hundred years ago or whatever. Um, and this idea that there is uh, this tragedy ongoing and that there must be something that we can do about it. So once again, there's a lot of um, kind of, I guess, lament running through this week's podcast. And, and, and I'm afraid we are a bit um, critical of certain groups of people, especially um, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, who it does seem like a donation to them could end up funding um, indigenous people being shot um, in the uh, you know, traditional cultures of the, the pygmies in um in, in um, the, I think it's the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Africa. Um, and it j just seems like we have a, a sense of urgency, which, to be honest, I sit and feel pretty gloomy about it at times. But the weird thing is that with this uh, lament, there's also immediately um, a sense of joy uh, that seems to be almost right alongside because unless we see the beauty you know unless we see the wonder of the possibility um of connecting and being part of land and then unless we like take some steps in that direction do a bit of foraging find a way to connect with other people in in these kind of activities um and see the joy in that it's right there you know it's like these things are not 
you know, some weird historical scenario that we can't reach back to. And we have to just think, wasn't it great when? We know, folks, just now there is uh, a possibility to embrace and, and be woven back in to the, the life cycles of plants and to do that with other people and, and to begin to forge culture. And I just realized that, yeah, there's there's an answer to, there's a, a need to flag these things up. And, and um, I don't make any apology for the fact that we are flagging them up, the problems, the issues, the, the, the terribly sort of mournful things that are happening that we need to look at, at how we can reverse and turn that around. But you immediately see that the first step we can take to reverse and turn it around is that we ourselves begin to inhabit land and um, become a part of things again and, and just how joyful and life-giving that is. So without further ado, um, as I want to say, uh, I'm going to introduce this week's guest, Anna Lewington. So it's a great pleasure to welcome this week's guest to the World Wild Podcast, her name is Anna Lewington, and she's an ethnobotanist of uh, many years um, standing. And uh, she's also an author of some really amazing and um, important books um, in the world of ethnobotany. The, the, probably the most influential one is a book called Plants for People, which Tim Smith of the Eden Project said this book has been a complete inspiration for the Eden Project. So that's that's uh, that's. Um, an important thing to have done to inspire a project um, that, that is now exposing so many people to, to the importance of plants. Um, and more recently, she's, she's written an amazing book called Birch, which is looking at a lot of different uses and history around the use of birch and, and amazing uh, breadth of different artifacts and products that come from just one tree. And the other thing that I find really interesting about Anna's work is more recently she's started a project called Rushworks, and that's basically reviving the tradition of, of working with rushes um, in all different kinds of weaving. And, it's, and she's doing that work with children, uh, which I think is just wonderful to, so to re recreate a culture around the use of a, of a wild plant in the, in the, in the British Isles. We're getting kids into it and, and and doing that, and she's she's um that's an ongoing project. So I, I'm hoping we're going to talk about that. So with with that quite lengthy introduction, I'll just get round to saying hello, Anna. Well, hello, Miles. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. You're an ethnobotanist. Now that means someone that studies the relationship between people and plants. So um yeah, I mean, I think that's really important stuff. Yeah, that's right. What what I'm really interested in is is yes, this fundamental relationship, um, the, how plants support us. Basically, I mean, you can look at it from many different angles. Um, plants, as we all know, provide almost everything that we use in our daily lives. Um, and uh, you mentioned the book that I wrote, Plants for People. Um, what I tried to do in that was actually take a typical day in the typical life of an average person and and look at just how many plants we do use without even knowing it and that that was a, a fascinating exercise but of course ethnobotany I suppose also is defined by um, say the study of a particular group of people um, and their knowledge of a particular set of plants let's say in a particular region so you're looking at anthropological approaches as well so it's a it's a pretty broad discipline um but yeah so actually i'm i'm perhaps i'm getting ahead of myself here but i mean i i first became fascinated um 
in this whole area because of my own upbringing, um, because I was lucky enough to be surrounded by ancient woodland. And um, I don't know if it's a good time to tell you about how I, I started this or if you'd like me to talk a bit about the books. Oh, yes, please. T tell us what your inspiration and, and, and story is. That's great. Okay, well, um, yeah, as I say, I was, I was lucky enough to be brought up in Sussex. Uh, we only had a, a very small house, but but my dad managed to get hold of this or, or buy this uh, in, in 1955. And uh, it was surrounded by um, a, a wonderful section of ancient woodland. And at that time, the surrounding farmland was still being managed in a, in a pretty traditional way. You know, there were cart horses. Uh, I, I was actually born there in 1955. So that, that shows you how old I am. But um, I, I can still remember there were hedges and ditches Um who used to go up and down the lanes and, and just sort of maintain the ditches, really. But they were such nice folk, you know, they were very gentle and and and, and they had a real respect for what they were doing. Anyway, we, we grew up with this woodland around us and, and it, it, I don't know whether it sounds too dramatic to describe it like a parent, but in fact, thinking now of my more recent research and the work I've been doing, um, looking at other cultures' uh, appreciation of plants and woodland around them. And it's interesting that often they see those plants or their environment as a type of mother or father. You know, it's something that produced them and and obviously is is supporting them. But, but for me, even though this wood, uh, this, you know, it was lovely oak woodland, chiefly oak, um, beech, but mi mixed species, it wasn't supporting us, but it, but it, I don't know. I, I think about it every day. Um, and the awful thing was that it was cut down when I was about 15. Um, at that time, the government was giving grants to uh, people who owned woodland to cut it down, as I'm, I'm sure you, you know, uh, because they thought it wasn't productive in inverted commas and that it would be much better if it was all, you know, horrible lines of conifers. And um we, we couldn't believe that the, the whole wood, uh, I don't know how big it was now exactly, I don't know if it was about 100 acres, was, was clear felled. And we felt absolutely outraged, uh, mm. really outraged. And it was like something had been taken from us, some tangible thing that had been taken from us. And that was what I think got me to thinking about what must it be like if you were in the Amazon, say, or in Indonesia, and the forest was your home, it provided your food, your shelter, and everything you depended on. If somebody came and cut that down or said, oh, sorry, actually, we own this, what would you do? Um, so uh, eventually, um, when I left school, I decided that I, I wanted to go out to South America. I'd also read about what was happening in the Amazon generally. There, uh, there'd been an article, I think, yeah, was it 1917? No, hold on, 1969. Um There'd been an expose in the Sunday Times about genocide in the Amazon written by a, a chap called Norman Lewis. And at about that time, the um, charity Survival International was set up, which campaigns for the rights, the well, the human rights and the land rights of indigenous peoples. And so anyway, uh, I decided that I would love to go out and, and, and you know, somehow try and help, although I, I don't think I, you know, I, I was very much help. Um, so I studied, I did, I went about it in rather a long winded way. I studied Spanish, um, and English at university at Birmingham university in, to enable me to go out and live in Peru. 
uh, which I did for a year as my my year abroad. But I'd also met a potato expert at Birmingham University who put me in touch with a, a very distinguished botanist who lived in Cusco. And I stayed with his family. And then I made trips down into the rainforest from there. Um, and then I was so, I was really, you know, uh, taken with it. I was completely smitten with with Peru and with with the culture, both in the highlands and of the lowland peoples, of which there are, are many. I think there must be about 50 different ethno-linguistic groups in Peru, possibly more. And um, so when I came back, I and did my um, first degree, I realized that I could, um, well, I wanted to go back and, and actually look in more detail at, a, at, at plants and how they were viewed uh, by particular groups. And I read that manioc or cassava was particularly important to a group called the Matsigenka who live in the Peruvian Amazon and that they regarded it as sacred. And I thought it would be fascinating to see what how that manifested itself, you know, what made it sacred. Um, so I managed to, to get back, this is in 1980 now, around 1980, 1981, uh, to spend some time with some Matsigenga communities on the river Urubamba. And uh, my thesis was just about the importance of manioc to them. And uh, to, well, I recorded the origin of, of manioc, uh, the myth uh, that, that recounts the origin of, of this tuber. It's a, a tuberous plant that supports and provides most of their carbohydrate. Um, actually, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm rambling on here. I don't know if I've got off the, the point of the question that you asked me. I think you're still talking about your story and how you, how you um... yeah. Rest from initial outrage about one one small forest to yes hear it to me on it well well that's it. it and it was just that at that time indigenous peoples around the world especially in the Amazon and well everywhere really and it continues today were considered to be well what should we say primitive backward stupid undeveloped and it made me absolutely outraged because here were people who've lived in harmony with their environment for thousands of years who know exactly what they're doing um and when i went to peru the matsigenga people uh, their territory had been invaded by loggers you know colonists gold miners and particularly by missionaries, which I also thought was the most outrageous um, assault. Uh, and these missionaries, I think particularly with the girls, they they they, they got hold of Matsigenga children and interned them in missionary schools and you know said, well we'll we'll you know we'll show you how to live a civilized life. So the point of me me going was really to to find out about that, to write about this incredible knowledge that that indigenous people have of their their environment, the ecology, everything about it. But I had to obviously just focus on this one plant, manioc, because that would be an enormous study um, to try and say to people, look, you know, back off, leave them alone. This is exactly what we should all be doing. Um, but of course, that was a rather naive idea that, you know, me just going out doing this thesis would would in any way change things, because what they really needed was political uh, muscle. They needed people to help them, to speak out for them, and you know, to, to support them uh, and, uh, against the actual physical incursions that they were being subject to. So um, I came back, you know, and I finished. I, I wrote that up, and then I sort of left things. I wasn't quite sure what to do. I wanted to work for Survival International, but at that time they were struggling for funds, and now they're a much bigger, better-funded organisation. 
um, and they do really brilliant, you know, a really brilliant job speaking out for for and and trying to defend indigenous peoples. But anyway, yeah, that's that that was the sort of the, the passion that got me going. Mm. And then I I realised that people have passionate relationships with plants in in many different spheres. It might be you know, growing a leek in <laughs> in in northern England, where there are leek championships, or it might be growing lemons in in the south of France, and obviously these these you know are modern examples. Or well, me saying modern as if what has been going on in Peru isn't modern. I mean, it's as contemporary as ever. But I mean, we're doing it with cultivated plants, which have become commercialized, whereas so many indigenous peoples are are thriving on an, an amazingly varied diet that supported them wonderfully. I guess that was the other thing that used to drive me mad, that people said they were scratching a living. <laughs> and I'm sure as a forager, this is exactly what you're trying to overcome. And I'll, I'll let you answer this after my long ramble. You know, this this idea that actually it, it it's not really nutritious, it's not really sustaining. So anyway, over to you, Miles. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to respond to there. Um, but just just like the survival thing, uh, uh, funnily enough, was wandering around London a while back, to, um, just meeting with chef customers, and I found myself outside the Survival International shop. I didn't um, know was such a thing. And um, I used to have a T-shirt that Survival um, produced. It said, the forest is our supermarket. I love that T-shirt. And I wore it till it had so many holes in it, it was embarrassing in the... And that, but uh, the, so I went straight in and thought I had a rack of T-shirts, and um, the girl in there said, "Oh, we're, we're not doing T-shirts anymore. They're all they're all a, they're a pound each." So I bought all of them. <laughs> I bought oh. all of the T-shirts. Uh, they're all kids' sizes, so I'm just waiting for my kids to grow into the bigger sizes. But but uh, oh. my little girl was wearing one yesterday. It says, uh, "What is a land without its people?" Oh, well done you. That's so lovely. Yes, I gathered that you've got children. What 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 have you got? Uh well I've got two of each. I've got two two two, two little ones and two grown up ones. I've got got, I've got a five year old boy, ten year old girl, uh thirty year old man and twenty oh dear, I hope she's not listening. Twenty eight <laughs> twenty eight year old woman. There we are. So that's uh Kit five, Ella ten, Ezra thirty, and um Rebecca twenty eight. Sorry, I put you on the spot there, Miles. No, it's just that I, you know, I think having children, you understand exactly. I mean, the children are our future. And and it's so lovely that your little girl is wearing that that's that T-shirt. Very proudly, I might add. Well done you. And and, and I think as, as as one of my hero, well, I guess he's my my hero, my main hero, George Monbiot has said, we're, we're, we're trashing the future. I mean, what? look what we're doing. Uh, not only he, of course, have, 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 has said that. I mean, many, many people also agree with us, but um, we have to find a different way forward, don't we? Because what, what's going to be left for them if we if we carry on like this? So, um, yeah, I, I, I just... And, and criticise one of your heroes. Because <laughs> George, it seems to me, has slightly lost the plot. Sorry, George. Um, you're welcome to come on here and defend yourself. but. Um, George wrote an amazing book uh, years ago called Parks Need People. Right. And now it seems to me that the rewilding project is is about anything but parks needing people. It's about get people off the land and, and let it go back to wild nature, which, um, you know, I, I personally feel that idea has to be challenged, you know, because it seems to me, just picking up on something you, you, you were saying there, um, 
that the that the that the studies that you make, what is actually the subject there is the is the cultural knowledge that links a culture to a landscape in a way that supports both the landscape and the people. And I just think that is so utterly vital. I said at the beginning of last week's podcast that that um you know to me it's like we're talking about endangered species. The most endangered thing is the cultural knowledge that enables us to live in harmony with with the biosphere because if we lose that we're going to lose everything can i just interrupt sorry just to say no i i couldn't agree with you more i don't like the idea of parks anyway i know there's a tremendous furore going on at the moment between well wwf and survival because a wwf i think they've just they're being now investigated by the charities commission because they have been funding some very heavy-handed activity in the congo against the baka people whom they have ousted from their their land. And I think this is, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, this is everything that I'm, I believe in, that you have to have people, that without people, I, I've always, in fact, I worked as a consultant, I hate the word consultant, but I worked as a consultant to WWF years and years ago, God, 1990 it was, and my my single message to them was, you must respect the local people. Uh, and if you get the people right, well, then you'll get the environment right. And so by excluding people, that's morally wrong and it's dangerous and stupid. The general thrust of this whole rewilding movement, not a lot about people being on the land. It's really saying, let's get the people out of here and let it go back to its own will. You know, the wildness being the will of the landscape and the biosphere mm-hmm. without us. Whereas my thing and, and what I felt George was saying previously through this parts need people thing and what survival is all about and so on and so on is that, you know, we are part of this and what we need to get back to is, is, is humans as part of it. That, that that's a really wonderful thing. We make the land flourish just like, a, like we're a keystone species. That's the, that's the idea I've been working with. The- yeah. I, re- I remember hearing you say that and I, I wrote it down. I thought that's fantastic. Um, or I don't know, is it, is it the title of one of your blogs, but I've, I've got it jotted down here, but no, really, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and for example, with the Amazon, I remember when I first realized or read that that is actually the result of, of human plant in, you know, human interaction that people have over thousands of years, cultivated certain things they've they've grown fruit trees they've grown extra for the peccaries maybe to come and eat or they've attracted wildlife and it's this fantastic mosaic and it's not just a wild abandoned thing i mean it suits our colonial sort of simplistic ideology to to think of it like that that we are civilized and that 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 isn't and that that we must tame it we're trying to get into this dialogue yeah. with the rewilding crowd and also the land magazine i don't know if you you ever um come across that but it's a, it's a great one to look at because um they're really looking basically at the relationship between people and land how do we get people working on land again um they're looking at planning laws to see how we can get that changed to uh make it easier for people to just have a simple um low impact dwelling in the countryside so that they can yeah. They can uh, have a business based around rural craft or small-scale agriculture or whatever. Um, and, you know, George has refused to engage with that particular dialogue as well like when, when, when asked. Sorry, I'm interrupting again, but I'm, I'm just so sad about that because I think in so many other ways what he's saying, you know, he's trying to reform the way we think about 
politics, isn't he? Um, his latest book, I think it's about, you know, looking at how we can work as communities and engaging people. And I thought that would have included engaging people with plants as well, because it's so important. And I've actually thought for ages, you know, things like our terrible prison population, I'm sure half those people, you know, they're there for really sad reasons uh, and, and have, have had really, really difficult backgrounds. And if we could help so many communities of people, not, I mean, you know, not that that's just one answer, but to, to, to actually get out and grow things and be part of communities that are productive. I mean, it, it's a loop that, that, that goes on and on getting better and better, doesn't it? So, oh dear, I don't know what to say, uh, Miles, about that, about that. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll flush him out so he'll come and actually uh, um, defend himself. Well, believe it or not, there, there's actually, I'm going this evening, there's a talk by Isabella Tree, uh, mm. uh, the rewilding at Nep estate. So maybe I can raise that. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because I know some people from down in, in that area. And, and look, I don't know that much about the that project there. And somebody gave me the book recently and I haven't mm-hmm. read it. My impression is that there's not a lot of use being made out of that land, for example, foraging and so on, and 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 harvesting stuff for crafts. Seems to me that's the next level. You know, an experiment like that probably just needs to go a bit further with um, just getting people involved. You know, I know they've got cattle on there, and that, that that, as far as I know, is the main output. But you know, if you've got a massive area of land that your land go back to um, to the wild, as it were. Mm. I have a lot of wild resources there that could potentially be used. So, um, yeah, that's um, that's what I'd be interested to 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 ask those guys. Um, yeah, I'll I'll certainly do that I'll, because it seems absurd, doesn't it? Here we are, we're very dense populations surrounded by land that's been stripped bare, that's being farmed in a really environmentally sort of precarious and, and, and awful way, uh, you know, with the application of so many pesticides or whatever it is, or fertilizers and nitrogen, um, or, you know, looking at maize, look how it depletes the soil, it causes runoff. So we've got, yeah, urban centers, great areas which are producing these monocrops to produce foods that actually aren't very good for us anyway i mean that's got to change hasn't it which i think is what you're trying to do i think the sooner we we can start doing that and engaging people as you said engaging children and i i think i read um somewhere that children young children are much more likely to be able to name i think they gave the example of pokemon characters and they can wild plants and the fact that the names of plants are being lost from our language as well because people just don't aren't able to go out and, <laughs> and and be with them and experience them in the way that you know I, I was lucky enough to be able to when I when I was small. We just need to give some small amount of exposure to some kind of green space or some like you're doing some craft activity involving plants. I bet you those kids are never they're never going to be fully industrialized now. You know uh, to doing your rush works thing. Well, I hope not. Yeah. So the idea was um, for, for people that don't know about it, actually, it was a few years ago I set it up now. And may I add, with a plug for the EU, um, that I received a grant from the EU to help me to, to do this. Um, I'd become fascinated because uh, I'd actually been helped. Well, I'd helped in a very minor way with a book at Q, uh, which was looking at wild resources at all. Well, it was actually looking at the value of, of plants, wild plants 
in in Britain, um, and and rushes were one of the, the the species that were featured in that book. Um, and I looked around here and discovered that our local river, I live in, in North Dorset, and our river is the Stour, is absolutely full of rushes and thought, well, blimey, you know, what? <laughs> why aren't we using them? So I, I did quite a bit of research and found that the uh, last rush cutter or that rushes had been cut here until about the 1960s when the last rush cutter died. Um, and it was described as a flourishing industry uh, in, in the 20s. They made baskets and mats and beehives and pew cushions and oh, all sorts of things, um, which were sent all over the place. Uh, and then the whole thing just sort of collapsed and, and, and hadn't really, you know, nobody had really done anything about it, certainly not in this on this part of the star for many years. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if if we could harvest some rush again, and as you say, particularly involve children, uh, and that was the most uh, rewarding part of it. Um, in fact, I haven't been into any schools lately, but I went into a, a large number of schools when the the whole thing was was just getting going, and uh, in, in the in the first couple of years, and yeah, as you say again, the. The, the wonderful feeling when, when you see a child making something and then perhaps this child and I can think of a particular case where there was a particular boy who was considered, you know, the, he was hopeless at everything and the teachers clearly saw him as a problem. And he made the best basket. And I, I felt like crying. You know, I said to him, look, stand up and, and look what you've done and let's show everybody. And he said, oh, you know, are you coming again? And of course, I wasn't coming again because they couldn't, you know, I had to charge a small fee because one of the requirements of the grant was that, you know, I, I had to make a business out of it. It was a project, but it was a sort of a little business as well. And they wanted to know, you know, what I'd sold or what I'd made or how, how many people were involved as, as methods of sort of engaging this, sort of gauging the success of this. But anyway, so... Um, you know, the school wanted to have me back, but their budget was being cut. So I never did go back. But I keep thinking, I wonder what happened to that boy. And maybe he saw that he was so capable and so dexterous with his hands that he could go on and do something really practical and, and really worthwhile that for him that he would really enjoy rather than feeling hopeless. <laughs> So yeah, that that that's been a great experience, and um, I must do more rush work. In fact, I've just been asked if I'll do some um, rush work for a bushcraft school uh, in Hampshire, um, showing them how to how to make a, a few baskets, which would be really good. But I think, as you say, kids kids are amazing. I I just love them <laughs> uh, because of the just the, the 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 way they approach it. They they'll. They'll just take it for what it is, you know, and and the enthusiasm. I think that's that's marvelous. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm very jealous of you having that um, skill under your belt, you know, because like I look at um, fiber and weaving is just a whole other department that I've yet to tap into, you know. Like with with the food, the <laughs> obvious thing is you end up. Um, knowing how to get something to eat wherever you are, you know, you can always go and find a bit of salad or something to munch on, or mm. make something more substantial at different times of the year. Um, but I'm, I, I, I kind of all I can say is I know about that 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 it is possible to get weaving materials pretty much wherever you are and just make a basket or make a something. Or but I mean, did you did you start from scratch with um with weaving with rushes, or were you already weaving stuff before? Um. Did that project? 
Yeah, I started actually with Willow uh, when I first came to Dorset, which is about 20 years ago now from from Sussex eventually um, via various other places. Um, I yes, I start I went on a couple of Willow workshops and and then I got interested in Rush and I was lucky enough to spend a weekend with an amazing woman. If you look at her website, she's called Felicity Irons, which is spelled I-R-O-N-S. And she has a business called Rush Matters. And she, she's just incredible. She um, They harvest huge quantities of rush. I think it's, she's based in Bedfordshire. Oh, gosh, am I, am I right here? I haven't got the thing in front of me. Um, but she has a most beautiful business. She, she goes out. She's got many boats. Um, they, they harvest, as I said, large quantities of rush. And she supplies matting for National Trust properties, for example, and makes baskets. Although I must say a little, with a little bit of you know, uh, sort of word of, of caution there. When I set up my project, I was so anxious to do it in the right way. I didn't want in any way to undermine any body or any other living thing if I could help it. So I sought as much advice as I could from from anyone you know, whom I thought might have an interest in it. So I asked, for example, the Dorset Wildlife Trust, uh, and they said, look, try not to cut too late in or sorry too early in the season when when birds are nesting because there are reed warblers there and you know water voles are, are vulnerable so for example now I cut fairly late in the season we, we we only cut a small quantity now each year too so I do wonder about you know cutting large volumes of rush but I guess Felicity's you know got it covered and I think she goes to various different rivers I just wonder what the what the basis of that advice was from the wildlife trust because the re- reed warbler nests in amongst reeds, doesn't it? Hence, hence why it's rather uh, rushes. Well, but. well, well I, I was told that, that that there would be that we've certainly heard them in, in amongst the rushes. We've heard them twittering, and I've seen them flying away. Um, I know. Well, <laughs> I don't know. That's what they told me. They sh- they told me to be careful of of reed warblers in amongst the rushes. I know there's some confusion here. People tend to call rushes reeds indiscriminately, um, and so I, I I don't know, Miles. But we 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 were told to to watch out for birds, and we certainly saw lots of little little warblers. Um, uh, but we never found a, a, a nest. Uh, so anyway, but well, that, you know, I, what, what I'm trying to say is, I tried to be aware of of my impact. Just, in, I mean, in, I you 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 may pick up the vibe here, and if you didn't, I'll I'll out my own vibe. You know, um, yeah. Because like wildlife trust and RSPB, you know, I'm frankly not a big fan for the same reason as uh, mentioned previously with with the the, the whole rewilding thing that I. I just feel they just don't get the idea that the uh, you know the, the the salvation or the or the turning around you know of, of this terrible uh, decline that we're in of of, um, mm. of you know environmental degradation and, and 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 people being also themselves degraded you know as we see people are uh, are more sick more mentally ill communities falling apart everything. Is all based on on the fact that we've been cut off from land. I just yeah. don't get why conservationists can't see that that is the problem. They 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 seem to think that they're going to solve it by cordoning off these areas and having a little area where they can just totally control what happens, so that the you know the bad humans can't ruin it anymore. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm sorry, inter- interrupting again. 
I don't really know what to say. I think when I set this up, this was in 2006, part of the requirement from the people who gave me the grant was that I had to ask local people. I had to engage local people. I had to, it wasn't supposed to be Anna's project, you know, and I was kind of feeling my way. So I just mentioned that because that was one of the steps I had to take. Um, But no, (laughs) and I'm feeling really, really kind of uncomfortable now because everything I've read about you I I agree with I I must admit when I first thought about I wasn't sure and then I sat down I read just about everything on your website but I haven't listened to all the podcasts and I think what you're doing is 100% right because if we never get out of this ridiculous rut we're in I mean we've got to do something but I'm just explaining historically that this is what happened and perhaps part of my problem is that I try and please too many people at the same time you know perhaps they made you worry needlessly that's what I'm saying because they they just I just I just sense that there's a default position that says, oh, you know, well, maybe you should just leave it alone, you know, and just let the animals have that, you know, whereas the point is, if we got back in and had use for massive amounts of land with wild stuff growing on it, you know, we'd, we could reflood the fens, for example, and have that extraordinary wild landscape that used to exist, which was being maintained and used by people for thousands of years. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, I I agree. I feel terrible. I, I wish I hadn't said what I just did because it makes it sound as if I, I don't agree with you. I'm, I'm just saying that for that project, that was one of the things I, I was required to do was to, you know, was to ask other people. I, was, uh, I, I had to ask permission of the landowner because, as you know, if you work on a river, you have to get the permission of the person who owns the bank on either side, well, on whichever side you're working. So I had to ask the farmer. I had to ask uh, that the, there's a very wealthy estate owner here. He, so I had to ask the guy who, who farms the land, the guy, and then the guy who he rents the land from. And, you know, there, there were all these sort of sort of barriers to get through. And, and, and I kind of was feeling my way, but I now know and what I was going to say, because you were talking, I think, on your website about you said you'd actually accidentally introduced. Oh, no, no, it was you were, you were talking about picking stuff and people ask you, look, aren't you taking too much? And you said in your 10 years or however many years you've been doing it, you've only ever noticed that things are flourishing and growing back because this is what people have always been doing. And I was going to say it's the same with the rush. Certainly where we've been, we haven't really made any impact at all. <laughs> and, and it's perfectly fine. So the wildlife trusts, you know, are obviously being overcautious. But that's what I had to do at the time anyway. Yeah, no, well, sorry to pull us off on that tangent. But uh, I mean, I'll just try and round it off nicely by saying the, yeah. the, the, the other side of the spectrum, we've got an area near us where Natural England are, are cutting reeds. And right. they're doing it in order to recreate the the um the landscape that encourages the birds so and i'm not i can't tell you what the exact train of thought is but the but the point is what they're recreating is is a situation where people were cutting the reeds for use and then they had these massive pile of reeds and they actually asked a former colleague of mine could he think of something they could do with these reeds because they're just embarrassed they cut the reeds and then just sit there because they don't need them but i just think it's like it's all backwards they're like Yes. creating it's historical reenactment basically and then you get somebody coming in that's not historically reenacting they're actually wanting to do something it's all oh, dear don't know about that you know you know you said you're you're taking children out i think that's a brilliant way to start you know can, can you get something into the curriculum can you can you influence teachers to to try and take this on board 
Well, I had one teacher. So, yeah. so, so far, we've, we've done a few bits over um, quite a long period of time, really. Um, yeah. We did something in a secondary school, and then we did some stuff. Just local people came on a Saturday. And then last year, um, I did some stuff in, in my daughter's school. Yeah. Uh, and one of the teachers there who was deputy head at the time, I mean, he was just so enthused and, 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 and in, a, in a kind of funny way, because he said, he said, um, it's actually really humiliating. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I'm a grown man and I don't know any of these plants that you can eat. It feels to me I'm embarrassed and I want to, you know, I, I want to, um, I want to know more. And, and um, mm. he's moved on to another school. I need to, I need to follow him to his new school because um, he's also deputy head there. And, and um, anyway, that's, that's what we, that's what we'd aim for, but we, we're just going to do a sort of pilot thing of getting into two or three schools. And, and the idea is, um, and at the moment we're making a funding bid to, to, uh, to support this. And it's mm. a, it's actually a funding source that I'm told can just roll on year after year. So in that, in that way, we would have really long-term input into some schools. And that's the thing I find tremendously exciting because I think then we could get a culture with the staff and the parents um, whereby anyone that come in, comes to that school would, would automatically, they're going to get woven into a culture where people harvest the acorns and use them. You know, they harvest the dandelions and use them. Um, so, I mean, I'm very optimistic and, and excited um i hope you know we don't encounter massive bureaucracy that ends up putting a spanner in works but for now I'm, I'm full of hope i i really think that um that this could um could do exactly what we're after doing you know connecting people from a very young age and making them think it's normal to um to be using stuff from their immediate surroundings yeah that's that's definitely what we need um actually i I think I, I was going to mention that I expect you've got, I don't know if she's a colleague of yours, there's a, a book called Foraging with Kids. I expect you've seen that. Oh, that's, um, Adele, Adele, I don't know who you... Or, anyway, she sent me a copy of that, and I very rudely, sorry, Adele, if you're listening to this, I will get back to you. There's a fantastic book, and my daughter loves it. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's, uh, there's several people working away on this, and mm. I, I just... I have a I have a dream of it becoming a national project where all the foragers everywhere start getting involved in their local schools, and and you know because we we should be behaving like um, you know like tribal elders if you know anyone that's got any of this kind of knowledge and I you know I don't want to make that sort of a rarefied elevated position that's not what I mean it's just like mm. if you're older and you know some stuff you're supposed to pass it on and, and you know anyone that knows about plants there ought to be a way. To, to get that knowledge to the to the children and young people because um yeah. it's it's, well, it's hardly anything that's more important in my opinion. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I I mean I guess you're friends with 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 bushcraft instructors, people like do you know Paul Kirtley? Uh well I've yeah I've I've spoken recently to Paul actually yeah and um yeah I know a few, I know I know a local guy here um that does stuff with um the city kids and all sorts of stuff like that we we talked about trying to um converge what we're both doing and mm. 
That's great. I heard him giving a talk. I saw a clip of a video. I mean, he was trying to say to people, look, don't just think about green leaves and wood sorrel. Think about things like burdock roots and and, and reed mace. You know, he was he was trying to get people to to understand that that you can provide um proper nutritious um, um sort of substantial meals you know that, that he was trying to get away from the idea that this is a sort of fad you know you're just right. spicing up a few restaurant meals well no exactly i mean it's either it's either a um credible source of nutrition or it's just mm. a kick you know and i i think it definitely is a credible source of nutrition mm. If everyone was eating all the all the salads and herbs that live near their house, I mean, this is this is the thing for me. I just look at um, how radical this is. You know, I always say to people, "Well, the problem is so much of our modern life is mediated, and it's mediated by uh, massive um, commercial and industrial forces." You know, that 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 uh, you know, I started feeding my guinea pigs different um, wild plants to see. What, what they'd eat and what they wouldn't eat. Um, and then suddenly thought, wow, this is, this is actually, it made me feel uh, or have a, a flash of insight about what it's like to be a modern human. It's like we're all in a zoo, you know, and the industrial <laughs> food system's poking things through the bars of the cage and that's all we're going to eat is whatever they deem it, deem it fit to, uh, to feed us, you know. Yeah, you know. Again, you're completely right, and this this makes me think about cows. You know, our poor, well, all our domesticated animals. Um, I, I, you know, my heart goes. I just can't bear to think of the of 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 the misery. I mean, of well, just take dairy cows. We we've been trying to to give up milk. Well, we have pretty much given up milk, and I. When I think about that, the fact that they would have had well, you know, years ago, access to um, meadows full of plants that they with which they could self-medicate, they knew what they wanted to eat, and now they've got <laughs> this appalling, monotonous diet. There, well, even round here in in uh, this this used to be called the Vale of Little Dairies. I think and Thomas Hardy coined that phrase for the Blackmoor Vale here, where I live in North Dorset. And there were many small farms and, and many still do exist, but increasingly, you know, they're they're kept inside. Um, well, I've, I've got some mixed feelings because some of the conditions that some of the cows have been kept in outdoors here are, are, are really appalling. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe some of them are better off indoors. I don't know. But in terms of the diet, yeah, we, we might as well be factory farmed animals, might we? Um, and so, although actually on, on the subject of cows, have you heard of the ethical dairy? Is this is this one where they're not slaughtering the calves and the land that the, um, is that one of the aspects? It, it's it's up in Scotland, um, and it seems to me a really good initiative. The, the 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 main guiding principle is to simply to let the calves stay with their mothers for at least six months, and I think longer if if they can. And they only milk them um, once. Well, I think they milk them once a day, but they take much less milk. The cows have a much more natural life and they have access to, to, to meadows and, you know, some of the plants. I think it's this particular project has, has won awards for biodiversity and the reduction of pesticides and all the other chemicals that would have been, you know, used on the farm. Yeah, so the ethical dairy, they seem to be on onto good things. But I, I, I feel very sorry also for pigs, you know, kept in... In confinement, and again, given a monotonous diet, when you think what a what a wild 
pig should be eating. It's um, yeah, I guess we're we're just doing that to ourselves now. Exactly. That's the thing. I think it makes me think we're 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 basically eating too much of stuff that's 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 rubbish. And yeah. in the past, we would have eaten small amounts of lots of stuff that was really really good. So. I just don't get the bit where this is supposed to be an improvement. You know, I'm, I'm missing that completely. And and, and what I was going to what I was going to say, um, following on from that guinea pig thing, is 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 in order to step out of the cage and stop just being dependent on industrial food to uh, supply our diet. And obviously, there's a middle ground. You know, you sign up to your local um, organic veg box and support the local farm that's doing it right, and so on. But like to me, to just stoop down and cut a dandelion from your lawn and then put it in your mouth or take it home and put it in a salad and then put it in your mouth. To me, that's like cutting out all of those steps of mediation between you and, and the wild landscape. I just love that. You know? So, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you can kind of work out from there. You start with that one radical act of a dandelion and start weaving different wild plants into your diet through the course of a year. And I just find, um, you know, I I have a quote that I wrote down from from a previous podcast you did, and you said um, if you grow up in a place, you have a bond with it. And I'm really exploring that idea of bonds. People that listen to the podcast perhaps getting you know slightly weary of me constantly using that word, but um, you know, to my mind, every time you weave a new plant into your diet, um, you're you're starting a bonding process. You know, I mean, I wonder if you would. Uh, agree with that in relation to what you've experienced with the with the rush work yeah Yeah, in general i mean well with in in in, with regard to work i've done elsewhere in the amazon uh here i'd like to mention also chile exactly that you know where where i lived in sussex you, you you how can you not have a bond to the environment that surrounds you when you're born when you're growing up and I wish more people could feel that bond again in terms of, of, of the natural environment. I feel very sorry for people who, who, who well, I've lived in London and, and, and cities, you know, on and off. And, and it's, it's not, not that much fun, but those spaces can be made green and they can be made interesting. And, and I guess people can, will, will and do bond with those in just, you know, just as strongly as, as people who live in the country. But yeah, that sense of place is, is absolutely vital. And, and, if children can lay down memories um, in, in, in that way uh, and, and relate to, to the stuff that's around them and care about it, because yeah, once you've got that bond, you, you don't want it to be destroyed. You're going to fight for it. You're going to protect it. It means something to you. And in fact, I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place with this. When I mentioned Chile, I was lucky enough to go out to um, visit a, a group of people called the Pehuenche who live in South Central Chile. And these are the people who, well, their name means people of the monkey puzzle forest because Pehuen is monkey puzzle and Che means people. And this was because I, I co-wrote a book on some of the world's most ancient trees. And my angle on it, my interest was, of course, what do trees mean to people? How, how do people express their identity through their relationship with trees? You know, what, 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 you know how, how do these things work? And so um, we, we were lucky enough to get some funding to go out to Chile and, and meet the Pehuenche. Uh, and this was in the mid-1990s. Uh, but it, and it was such a profound experience. They were such incredible people because historically they depended on on the monkey puzzle nut for their protein, 
but much more than that, the monkey puzzle was seen as their mother. It was seen as their home, the forests were their home. Uh, and yeah, what I didn't mention with the uh, peoples I, that I had the privilege of working with in the Amazon, you know, everything is animate. These aren't inanimate things. And now, at last, our science seems to be almost catching up. You know, I know there are books like, um, oh, is it uh, the one by Peter Volleb and the Hidden Life of Trees, looking at how trees actually can talk to each other and connect and how they feel and express themselves, which isn't exactly what indigenous peoples are saying. But but indigenous peoples have known all along that, that that we're one unit, that we interact with plants, plants interact with us. Without them, we can't live. And and so it's beholden to us to 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 respect them and care for them. So anyway, but so talking about bonds and, and sense of place, uh, the Pehuenche appealed to us and said, look, can you help us? Because our forest is being cut down all the time and they were so vilified and so badly treated by the Chilean government, even though they have Chilean government has the nerve to say that the monkey puzzle is its national tree. But what they'd done is they'd let loggers go in and set fire to vast tracts of monkey puzzle forest because the law said that even though you couldn't damage a standing monkey puzzle, you could cut one down if it was burnt. And so yeah, you know, we tried to publicize their plight a little bit. And yeah, it make, makes me wild. I, I feel so angry because it's only because people like the Pehuenche, people like Amazonian indigenous groups in Borneo, wherever it is, have looked after those environments that we have the benefit of breathing in the fresh air, of having drugs that help whatever complaint we've got, having foods. You know, that's a point I try to make repeatedly in Plants for People that we're the beneficiaries of this incredible ancient knowledge. And when are we going to thank these people and 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 really yeah, realize what they've done for us? You know, I used to think every time we we eat anything, you know, how much time do we think of, you know, how, how long do we spend thinking about the people who enabled this all to happen? So uh yeah, that's quite a long answer to your question. But I I just want to show you that I really do feel very passionate about it and you know, I've had the privilege of visiting rubber tappers in the Amazon as well, who their knowledge is utterly phenomenal. You know, they're, they're the sort of de descendants of people who moved into the Amazon at the beginning of the 1900s and, you know, married, intermarried with indigenous peoples. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I suggested that, that a couple of them should do an encyclopedia of palms because they just knew everything about the palm fruits there and the palm tree uses. And that was their place. But you know, I mean, that that was the, the place that belonged to them. But everywhere, people are being killed uh, for protecting the environment, particularly in South America. So, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. Sometimes I think, what shall I do? Shall I just boycott things? Shall I just become an activist? Shall I go out there and, <laughs> and tie myself to something until people stop cutting the rainforest down to grow oil palm? You know, I don't know what to do. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm having a rant now. <laughs> I think that's what to do, isn't it? Have a run. I mean, if, I you know, so. there's there's a lot of people out there that just they just want to to know what is the perspective, you know. Because mm. I, I was inspired um, last week um, listening to you talking about um, this palm oil business. Mm. You, know, you know, you got me. I'm 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 I've been slightly seduced by this sustainable palm oil thing. You know, and 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 thinking, okay, well, it's okay to have this one because it says that. Even though my daughter's told me she thought it was nonsense, but you know, <laughs> boys, back yes. in what what my daughter said, 
um, she kind of got me halfway there. But now, with like, um, I mean, and funnily enough, what should appear in my email this afternoon, Anna? But um, but I think I'm on this food, several food mailing lists, and there's this thing called foodnavigator.com. They they sent me a report called um, the RSPO CEO talks sustainable palm oil's big challenges, and 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 it's all kind of um, you know roundtable for sustainable palm oil. That's the RSPO is working yeah. to put sustainable palm oil into the mainstream, um, and 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 so on. But like I flicked through this. And um, I thought this would probably annoy you as much as it does me. And, uh, and no, I, I, I find it utterly, utterly outrageous. But also, you know, there's a lot of politics going on in all this. Uh, again, I haven't got the details in front of me, but I think Indonesia, because the EU has threatened or has said that they will reduce because yeah one of the horrendous things that i think half of all the palm oil that's coming into europe is being used for biofuel i mean and then people saying this is a green fuel what nonsense uh ah uh so um sorry what was i going to say oh yes that, that that so this has caused really big you know political arguments because the eu said to indonesia look we we want to cut back on this and indonesia said right well, in that case, we'll we'll retaliate and we'll boycott whatever it was. And I think it was to do with, um, oh, yeah, their order of, I think there were some aircraft that have been ordered. You know, these are big multi-billion dollar deals. So there's a big war going on there. And there we are thinking, yes, you know, perhaps we can solve this. But so therefore, does that mean that we go to the EU? Do we go to our politicians? How, how the hell do we stop this? And then people say, oh, well, if we didn't use palm oil, um, you know, we'd have to use the land would much more land would have to be given over to produce the equivalent amount of oil. And I think that can't be right. And as you say, there are so many sources of oils. And in fact, you must I'm sure you know about this because um, you, you, I'm sure you know all about nuts. But there are some really interesting initiatives in North America looking at hickories and, and uh, other nuts. And in fact, there was a guy at Kew. I was talking to the other day and he told me about something called the Nutty Buddy Cooperative, I think it is, or the Nutty Buddy Collective. And, the, you know, he said, look, we, we can we can get tons and tons of excellent oil from hickories. And people are asking us how to cut them down, you know, because they see them as a problem in their backyard. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is people being lazy. It suits the big companies because it's easy and cheap and people will do anything to, to get something cheap uh and i know then people could say well that's all right for you obviously you know you you don't have to worry about you know the cost of your food well well i do but i just think okay i'd rather have less food perhaps <laughs> better food and and not how can we eat anything i mean we we go almost mad trying to avoid palm oil because it's in about half of everything that's in the supermarket so yeah sorry another rant um this is the run uh, this is i uh, deliberately Provoked rant because I think it's a really important rant. Can you give some more details on? I mean, I'm sure most people know this anyway. But but so what's all the stuff that we have to stop eating if we're going to go no palm oil? Well, unfortunately, it's in so many things. And also, may I add, and I don't know if Kew Gardens are listening, but I think they should be ashamed of themselves. I keep meaning to write to to whoever is the buyer for the shop at Kew. You pick up some very beautifully packaged hand soap. You know, it's got a picture of a 
a camellia on it or a bluebell and lo and behold you turn the damn thing over over and it's it's two main ingredients are palm oil i mean what are they doing you know <laughs> their, their 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 remit is to save the world's plants to investigate them you know all the rest of it but actually they're taking money from people who are supporting the very trashing of the thing that they're saving so um yeah so soaps um all sorts of foods um you know um Things like, uh, well, Doritos, I think, uh, some cereals, um, toiletries, um, cakes. Oh, bread. Couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah. We have a range of supermarkets around here. And I don't always go to Waitrose, but I, I go to Waitrose because they say they have the best policy on animal welfare. And you buy a takeaway sandwich from Waitrose. I mean, we've occasionally done that, you know, we've been on a journey somewhere. And bloody hell, they've got palm oil in their sandwiches um shortbread that's another one I, I bought a tin of short I know I got sent a tin of shortbread that's right for Christmas and it was Scottish shortbread it said with butter so you turn it over and it's got butter in it but it's also got short it's also got palm oil so I'm afraid everybody needs to go out there and read the labels and if it says something in soap like sodium palmitate uh you know anything with palm p-a-l-m in it that's got palm oil. Um, oh, things like those ghastly, what are they? Ferrero Rocher. Um, those have got masses of palm oil in. Um, that Nutella stuff, I think that's got palm oil in it. Yeah. Oh, dear, I don't know if I'm going to be sued now. But companies like Nestle and Unilever are really, really the bad guys in this. Uh, oh, dear. Maybe I can <laughs> provoke some sort of action. I don't know. Um, yeah. Is that enough on palm oil? Yeah, well, I mean... It, it's some it's some good information i mean um the thing that the thing that, that these people sent through i just just want to read this out to you um so here's this guy waffling on about how great they are um weber calls for the food sector to support the uptake of sustainable practices in palm oil producing countries how nice of him to mm. call the food sector so to support the uptake of sustainable yeah. practices so we can all support it i'm very supportive how much does that cost you? You just make a statement, right? And then, and then uh, next he says, indeed, he observed large food companies have ramped up their focus on delivering zero deforestation in their palm oil supply chain. So we have a report of something happening here, Anna. The man in the in the uh, sustainable palm industry has observed something. <laughs> yeah. Someone's observed something, so that that must be significant. And secondly, the thing that he's observed is that food companies have ramped up their focus, Hannah. That's good news. So everything's going to be all right because large food companies have ramped up their focus on delivering zero deforestation. We've not we've not reduced deforestation. Oh no, we're just sort of vaguely thinking about maybe working up to that at some point in the future. But for now. We've ramped up our focus on delivering zero deforestation and somebody's observed it. So it's going to be all right. I don't know what to say. I, I, I Yeah, it's appalling. How dare they? I, I, I don't know how many worlds they think we've got. Uh, you know, this, this is one world, isn't it? We're, we're all interconnected. We're all dependent. On, on on each other and on and on the environment around us how how dare they and and you know my i feel so angry for the in, indigenous peoples whose lands have been 
taken over by this oil palm. You know, we're we're outraged. People worry about the orangutans, and that that's valid. You know, so they should. But what about the people, the Dayaks, the Penan, the poor? You know, the, they're not poor in in the sense. You know, I don't mean poor in material terms i mean i'm so sorry for them because they've they've had this foisted on them and there have been even some propaganda articles apparently again i'd need to check this on 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 the computer um you know sort of pertaining to be from from palm oil you know forest workers saying what a good living it gives them i mean i think it's hellish it's horribly hard work it's heavy repetitive uh, yeah, they live in dismal conditions. They're in, I think, many of them in appalling, appalling sort of tin shacks. How dare they, um, you know, take away the livelihoods that they had before and and foist this on them? It's simply because it's 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 creating export earnings for Indonesia and Malaysia, and the horror of it now spreading into Papua. New, well, I think it's already in Papua New Guinea. In Africa, of course, the, the palm originally came from Africa, but also now in South America, in Peru, Ecuador. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible threat. And, and it's how they how they can possibly justify it. I don't know. It's like you say, it's like people who belong to conservation groups, say the RSPB, but they're not actually looking at what the real problem is. They, why don't people confront the actual basic root of all our all our woes? You know, it's like the icing on the cake, isn't it? I guess I don't know. Somebody said to me, it's it's because it threatens their core values, and I think, well, maybe we need to threaten their core values then. Yeah, yeah because because we have to. Um, and so I think, as you said, I'm hoping that our children can maybe do things in a more radical way than we could. Or you know, I've been trying all my life, but. I don't know. I've just been banging my head up against a brick wall, and my my book, Plants for People, got put in the gardening section of bookshops because <laughs> there wasn't really anywhere to put it. Um, you know, because wasn't a challenge your worldview section in the bookshop. <laughs> yes, uh, that, that section. Yes, that that would be better, wouldn't it? But it, you know, not that I've got all the answers. I'm I'm just a person. I'm just a person who cares. And I always used to think, I don't want to be all right if other people aren't all right. You know, the fact that I know that, you know, there are Paraguayan Indians who are living in a shack by the side of the road because their indigenous land has been taken over for soya plantation. That makes me sad every day. You know, I think about it often. I I think, well, what can I do? I, I'm here. I'm now. I've, you know, I've been born into the, this way of life, but I, I, I wish I could do something else to, to you know, to, to make it better. I want to go back to something more basic and that's more honest, because all of this is based on a sort of dishonesty, isn't it? So anyway, that's what I think. <laughs> it's, all in, it's all industrial. And I, I, I just think that to me that the, the, the twofold thing that we engage with here is challenging that challenging that way of doing things that we've we've we, we just do things in this mass scale in industrial mode um which is just producing carnage and crap you know and 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 no satisfaction you know people people don't actually like any of this stuff they're just so used to being force-fed junk and i mm. mean literally in terms of junk food but also just generally the way of life you know tv yeah media and stuff, yeah. stuff 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 busy 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 so you can get the money which doesn't make you happy and you know we're just on this treadmill because we've become machines ourselves 
I read this guy mm-hmm. saying, you know, like we become cyborgs, you know, we're half machine, mm-hmm. half biology. And, 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 and yet, on the other hand, Anna, there's, there's the thing that, that I guess we're both trying to be a part of recreating culture which weds people back to land. And, and so it's the total opposite to that, that whole industrial thing. And, and yeah. I think the trouble is we're just too, we're just too isolated. Like, I mean, um, you know, we really do need to recreate culture so that people are, you know, a, a, a proper web, you know, of practical involvement with each other and, and, um, and um, just supporting um just getting back to land with just funny little things we do, like weaving rushes and making nettle soup and mm. and these simple, simple things, but they're so powerful because they, yeah, they really are. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I think you were saying, or I don't know if one of your guests said in the podcast, just getting out and about. When you talk to people, you familiarise the children with whoever it is, your neighbour or somebody else, and these are really important basic human functions, aren't they? not seeing what we don't know as alien, which is what is happening politically now, isn't it? We're sort of, you know, this hysteria whipped up in various countries like Brazil and a sort of terrible xenophobia. And we've, and we've done this to the environment, haven't we? We've, we've, we've really, really terrifying. In fact, there is one thing I, I actually, I was going to mention too. I know it's not really about um, foraging and, and, but, you know, thinking about how our, our youngsters are, are pretty hooked on technology. Um, people of my age are, are still struggling with it, but um you know, and, and looking at mobile phones all the time, I, I really recently received a, an email from a graduate student in Nova Scotia, uh, in, in that's in Canada, um, and she's doing a, a master's degree, um, and she's trying to think about how to connect people who, you know, for whom technology is, is you know, a principal part of their lives with nature, and she's come up with this thing called Text a Tree Initiative, and she's, she's trying to get people, she's um, she's partnered up with, with with a local garden and and they're somehow going to allow people to sort of send messages to, to trees in this garden and then somehow the trees are going to reply. That's good because it's getting some sort of communication. It, I know we don't really want people to use their mobile phones, but I guess she was trying to think about, you know, how, how you could get a conversation going, how you could try and educate people about the cultural importance of trees and, and nature in general even if they use their mobiles. But look, I had some nettle soup today for lunch, actually, and I was thinking of you. I was thinking, you'll think, well, that was a bit tame. What else could you have put in it? So I put in some land cress that we've got, but I guess that's not really wild. Um, and Yeah, I can't think you get much better than nettle soup at this time. Yeah. Is there an equivalent of land? Is land cress growing wild anywhere? Well, it, it is It is naturalised a little bit, but our, our version of that is... Um, because another name for that is American wintercress. Well, um, we have wintercress, which is the same um, same genus. Um, and there's quite a lot of that about. Um, it's a bit more punchy than than landcress. It's it's um, a, bit, a bit bitter and quite mustardy. That's a more native wild equivalent, wintercress, or also known as yellow rocket. I mean, we've started doing this thing in our house with with uh, with with making sure when we have a hug, we do it properly. Because there's this research that says if you hug for longer than, I think, nine seconds, then oxytocin kicks in and you, your body starts really properly attuning to the other person and, and you really get some benefit out of it. So 
um, we started this 30 second hug thing, but I took my kids to the, to the woods and they spontaneously applied it to trees. And then they've heard this idea of tree hugging, but they just, they just said, well, we're going to try and hold, and they hugged a tree and they said it was really good. Yeah, that sounds like a really healthy thing to do. I, I, I think more people should do it. But I do, I do think there is a general feeling, isn't there, though, that people do want to try and reconnect, but maybe, you know, they're just not sure how to. Don't know how. Yeah, just don't know how. They just so, don't know how. So, I mean, any anybody that's got any vague, I, mean, I was just saying earlier, my granddad took me out foraging for mushrooms when I was six. Uh, I've talked about this a lot, but I've never made the observation before. Um, which I suddenly realised today, he only ever did it once. He never took me out picking mushrooms again. I mean, that's not a complaint. It's just an observation. It took once. And I've, I've, I've been a completely preoccupied with wild food ever since the age of six. Um, as what? a result of one, one, one relative who didn't even know that much about mushrooms, didn't even go picking mushrooms very often, but he took me out once for half an hour. And that, that changed my life. So... You know, it just goes to show just a tiny bit of knowledge and we can still be a tribal elder, pass that on to somebody else. And and um, and who knows? But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think it does only need one, one, one experience like that that sticks in your mind. Actually, I remember my dad. So this was in the 19, maybe 1960s, early 1960s, because we were relatively near Gatwick Airport and he was worried about the pollution then. And he said... If they would only put some coloring in the in, in, in the fuel, he said, if they put green coloring in and the sky went green, you wait, you know, you'd see people really doing something about it because he hated air, air transport. And I mean, that was then. I mean, how many years ago is that? That's a lot of years ago. Um, and I've never forgotten it. And, and the fact, yeah, he took us out, my dad, and he, he showed us a lot of, yeah, the wild flowers we had and wild plants on the verge of the wood and in the wood. Uh, yeah, he, he was really passionate about conserving what, what we have and, and well, conserving and using what we have. So, um, yeah, I think you can't beat experience, can you? You have, have to get out there and, and, and do some stuff. So anyway, if you'd like to learn how to make a rush basket, I'd be absolutely delighted to show you. Um, if I had the opportunity to come over to Kent or if you were coming to Dorset, I'd be really, really delighted to show you. Well, I'd love to do it. Love to oh, do great. It. Well, you know, I hate to think that you've run out of rant, um, and <laughs> just to provoke you further just before we um, kind of wrap things up, but I might that, this might provoke you to another half an hour of, <laughs> of sheer indignation now. I'm afraid I've found a link between the, um, the palm oil guys who you ranted about, mm-hmm. both ranted about, and the World Wildlife Fund. A recent report from World Wildlife Fund Poland highlighted that palm oil is the most efficient vegetable oil. So, Well, look, I, I don't know whether I ought to broadcast this, but I, I'm, I really am not a fan of WWF. I, I think they are top heavy. I think they, I don't know, I maybe I shouldn't say all these things because Yeah, I I, I did some work for them years and years ago, but it's a big, very wealthy organization. Um, They they have a lot of corporate sponsors whom they they need to keep happy. Uh, I think the most effective 
conservationists are indigenous people, local people who know what they're doing, but that is that seems to be the most difficult message for them to take on board. And if they could simply do that, if they could champion land rights, uh, human rights, people's rights to self-determination, you know, those poor people in Indonesia whose land's been taken, that's, that's you know, how much better can you, how, what, what, what better, what more can you do to conserve the environment than, than allow people who've been conserving it all the time to do it? So I'm afraid, yes, WWF is a, is a big heavyweight. And, ah, that reminds me, you know, they've teamed up with the BBC, haven't they, to, hasn't a big new series, or it's just being launched, I think, with, I think the BBC or the guy who's done this series, I think it's called Our Planet, it's another Attenborough, and it's and it's teamed up with uh, what's it called Netflix, and the sponsor is WWF. So it's all about money. Yeah, it's a fundraising exercise for those buggers, you know. So everyone's suddenly very concerned about species extinction, and what's yes. that they're going to do? Does it mean they're going to reduce their carbon footprint? Does it mean they're going to change their dietary habits? No, it means they're going to make donations to the World Wildlife Fund. That is exactly what it's about. And and I haven't seen, I mean, there's been a Blue Planet Live or something or our Planet Live. And apparently they've just been doing beach cleans and sort of cosmetic stuff like that. So, yeah, it's 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 appalling. It's absolutely appalling. It, well, I don't like the expression, the elephant in the room, but they, they just won't actually confront the fact that we need to change entirely how we're living and what what we what we think is important uh i hate money uh i know we all need it but yeah i just think it's 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 horrible stuff that that you know encourages all the worst behaviors in people um and i know people have been exchanging goods for for millennia and sort of accumulating wealth but i guess that there have been more ways to balance that out in the past now to think that our economies our world is run by a, a few a handful of billionaires who are telling us what we're going to do it's just yeah it's outrageous <laughs> so well, i agree with you balancing out thing is just that in the past we had we had a re response and feedback from our surroundings from what we were doing whereas now because it's all industrial and comes from somewhere else we can merrily turn a blind eye you know because we, we don't have to we don't have to uh engage with the feedback mechanism but I, I think i think the amazing thing about climate change is is you can't run baby <laughs> it's going to get you exactly where you are wherever you are now we've just had the hottest february ever and it's beginning to be something that no one can can um say oh well i sorry i just didn't believe it was happening well you know you have to believe it's happening now and and i just think we um you know i mean i i, I love this palm oil thing about the foods because for me it's one more reason not to eat industrial food because i just noticed that that when i made a salad from um some dandelions and this and that that i foraged in the field next door last night um there wasn't any palm oil in it for some reason <laughs> yeah it's, it's just one more reason to just go actually i'm just going to get my own food from places i know and trust i don't have to look at the label because there's not a list of ingredients it's a carrot <laughs> yeah well done well done you and actually what i was going to say was i really admire the fact that you've said look you know just because if, if you can't get out into the country don't worry you know there are things in urban spaces under bridges i i guess well there is some concern about the pollution i i guess that's a bit of a problem but 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 
you know, what 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 about people who are living in in, in big cities? You know, um, in terms of foraging, I, I guess that's that's more difficult for them. Well, there's green spaces in all all the big cities somewhere. Yeah, I feel that the thing the thing that we're pushing towards in the long run, if everybody's going to start foraging, which we certainly think they should. Um, we're not worried about that as a possible scenario. We think it's it's a, it's a vital step in the right direction because, for example, in the city, it means we would have to stop the the, the pollution and we'd have to do some kind of phytoremediation or other way to clean up the soil. And there are ways to do that, you know, get the lead and all the other junk out of the soil. Because yeah, that, you can you we, can actually use plants to do that too, can't you? There are some species of ferns that will take heavy metals out of the soil. Well, even nettles will do it. It's just we'd, we'd have to we'd have to then send the nettles away to extract the lead and maybe use the lead for something. But but people are starting to do that in in various different um very different various different projects and applications for that idea. But yeah, I mean, I think regreening the cities. One thing I thought about saying earlier, um, just thinking about like the, the contrast of industrial agriculture. Somebody I was listening to last year uh, pointed this out that that where you have um, the countryside, yeah, the mm. in countryside, but it's actually it's 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 more um, it's less biodiverse than the city. Um, you know, you're better off keeping bees in the city than you are out in the so-called countryside because the pesticides are everywhere, and 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 the honey is going to have traces of pesticides in it in in um, in my local surroundings, uh, whereas it wouldn't on the roof of a building in London. And if you see that that uh, that field there it's just it's actually a massive green desert growing just the monoculture of plants so we've got this organization called um i think it's the campaign to protect rural england right. yeah they are really um they are really anti any kind of planning or development and yes we must be on their side but actually in my view that's the campaign to protect industrial farming because they're stopping people from building on on farmland that's being farmed industrially. Now, what happens when we build on that land is all of a sudden you have loads of gardens that are full of wildlife. Yeah, actually, this place where people are becomes this um, this biodiverse thing. And if if we had if we had sensitive development where you know like the hedgehogs could move around and we didn't have fences and 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 all of that sort of thing, so. I see the same thing in regard to the city, you know, that where people are, if we, if we, um, if we rethought how we did cities, um, they could be the most extraordinary places, full of green stuff, full of wildlife and, and so on. So, you know, I'm sure there's another way of doing it, Anna. Right? I um, think, yeah, no, I agree 100%. Around here, again, you know, the farmers, <laughs> well, you don't know exactly where I live, but our neighbour, I, I know my partner, John, said something to my neighbour once about, about cutting the hedges. And oh, I don't know, we, they, they were talking about wildlife and he said, oh, there ain't no wildlife around here. <laughs> all, the, all the wildlife has gone because we've poisoned it all. Yeah. And, and that's kind of taken to be the way it should be. And yeah, so no, you're right. I just... We have to completely change it, but it's quite a big change. You've, you've, we, you know, you've got to uh, to bring about here, though, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, we're just edging in the right direction. I think just become less industrial mm. and 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 weave some new uh, people and land kind of culture. And that's that's. I just think that's. I I just can't 
see there's another I mean, yeah, we, we've got to, we've got to, at another level, protest, challenge the powers, things like that. But to me, the, the biggest thing to the challenge of, of, of uh, powerful vested interests is other people doing it, doing it in a different way that's better, you know, because, um, mm. you know, no one's going to stop me picking a dandelion. And, and, um, mm. and, you know, we can show that that makes us satisfied and healthy and, and all of that. Some, some, Sometime or other, people will notice that this is a better way of doing it if, if we just do it better. You know, yes. Yeah. That's how I'm going to... Well, let's hope that this really kickstarts something. You know, I think what you've got going looks looks amazing. And uh, I, 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 you haven't been going for, for, for that long now, have you? Or, I mean, how, how is it really, you know, it's, it's really taking off now and people are taking note? No, like we've we've been doing Forager Limited or, or Forager as, as a company selling stuff to restaurants. That's been going for fifteen years. Um, wow! In that time, we've had massive kickback from like Natural England of of uh, you know taking legal action against us for, for for foraging in a couple of places. That's a whole other story. But like we had a big legal battle there where we we were just trying to make the case for uh, actual engagement with land. And in some ways, that's been a success because they then planted a load of sea kale on a beach that had been um, trashed for, for, for uh, sea defences. They planted a load of sea kale there in response to this conversation, but they still wanted to ban us from uh, collecting it on, on uh, the place we were collecting it. And, and you know, you might say, well, fair enough, because it's, uh, it's, it's an SSSI. But the point is, we made a very strong case with the support of uh, eminent botanist um, John Aykroyd and, and another oh, guy, yes. David Seaman. And all these really high-ranking botanists in terms of their credibility and their, their knowledge base and so on stuck up for us and said, well, of course they're not doing any harm. And, and Natural England didn't care that there was no evidence for it. It's just like, well, you know, it's an SSSI and we're going to ban you because we want to ban you, not because there's evidence to support you doing harm. You know, oh, so that's, shame. that's a real shame. You know, there needs to be a conversation, doesn't there? This is the problem. People, again, it's people get into camps, don't they? And they're right. We're in this camp and you're in that camp. And they feel very defensive about it. And it's 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 such a shame that we can't explain these things to each other. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you know, that's that's just an example of for us. Like we're trying to come through with, with a very positive message about reengagement. Mm. We actually find that in the in the conservation world that provokes a lot of fear. People think, yeah, but what if everybody did it? We're going well, exactly. Then everyone would reconnect, and then instead of having to just have this peripheral activity you're doing of of, of trying to protect small marginal bits of land, you would have everybody wanting to make everywhere biodiverse and flourish. You know, but I think people just can't move away from this basic idea that if everyone foraged, we would we would just ruin everything. You know. Um, so what I would say is that there is some take up, but I think there's been actually a big backlash, Anna, in the last five years. And like um, the Guardian has now run several negative anti-foraging um, articles. Shame on you, the Guardian. Um, and and um, it's gosh, I didn't know that. You know, I feel a bit naive about this argument. I'm I'm really, you know, I yeah, I'm sorry sorry about that. Yeah, but I mean, anyway, this just just trying to map it out. Uh, d d mm. We're 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 fairly uh, like dug in for the long haul because we we know well, no people are just misunderstanding this and and not seeing the, the crucial point. It's not about whether you know initially everybody could go out and have thirty kilos of wild stuff in their immediate surroundings. 
you know, if you did the maths, you'd think, well, there isn't 30 kilos of stuff for everybody, so therefore we couldn't do that. But 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 the point is, where does it take us if we're succeeding in, in connecting people with their local surroundings? That's going to be transforming things, and everybody's going to think differently and, and, and work differently in the long run um, from that. So I guess we're dug in for the long haul here. It's just like, okay, let's, let's just um, – so I'm sort of shifting away from – I don't spend a lot of time on the um, – commercial foraging business now we've just started a community that's and it's kind of scaled down a bit anyway so we've got a community interest company and that's the vehicle we're going to use to do all this stuff for kids etc etc and uh, just trying to think about attacking things from a from a slightly different and less controversial angle i mean who can say who can say that they're a bit nervous about kids foraging you know they might be a bit nervous about us commercially harvesting sea cow but uh, who's going to be nervous about us teaching kids to forage so we, we just maybe uh do it in a way that can maybe people feel a little less uh worried and, and perhaps then listen to what we're trying to say that's a good way to, to to get into it again i think that 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 really might work so yeah i hope i hope that does that does take off listen it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you miles thank you so much and i realize that we haven't even mentioned birch sap or any other aspect of the birch tree which could be useful to foragers, but another time. But thank you so much for having me. Well, maybe we'll get you this time next year and we'll talk exclusively about birch. If you'd like to, that, that would be lovely. But I, I really wish you well. And uh, as, I, as I say, thank you so much and good luck with all that amazing work with children. Thanks very much, Anna. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's Worldwide Podcast. And... You know, you could act on what you've heard this week and get out and eat something wild. If you're living in a temperate zone and you're listening to this within the time frame that we release it, it's coming out in April, well, you'll have nettles growing outside. And I always say that nettles are the only wild plant species you can reliably identify in the dark. You just know that it's going to sting you. And if it doesn't, it's not a nettle. So there's something you could gather and eat. And you can make the simplest nettle soup in the world. You just take a handful of nettles boil a cup full of water, stick them together in a blender and pour them through a sieve and you have just basically a, a, a nettle stock, a nettle bouillon and it's so delicious. If you want to add something to it, just a little bit of lemon juice and salt and there's a very, very simple soup and that'll mean um, if it's the first time you've done that, you'll see it's a step into the wild and uh, a wild thing stepping inside of you. You'd be part of the landscape that you... Uh, taken those nettles from because the molecules of the nettles be part of your body um, as ever we ask you to please give us a favorable review if you like this stuff um, and rate us on itunes or wherever you you uh, listen to the podcast and also consider becoming a patron um, just a few people supporting us with a small amount every week we can be in a position to produce uh, more content and put more into the edits and probably develop the show a little bit. Okay, thanks very much and um, we'll see you next time. <laughs>